Welcome to Novel Pairings, a podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're discussing The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain. Hey, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. Feels like it's been a long time since we've talked about a book. Yeah, maybe maybe <laughs> it has. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. I'm, I'm really excited to hear about your experience with teaching Huck Finn, and especially since we recorded a bonus episode about Mark Twain. Ever since then, I've been like really eager to, to talk about this book. Yeah, I... I'm excited to talk about this one too. This one, I feel like I just have a lot of teaching baggage with this mm. book. And so it's always been, it's just not a book I think about with any like fondness or enjoyment. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm hoping our conversation changes that a little bit today because I do think this book has a lot to offer. It just, um, it just is kind of steeped in some yeah, baggage for me. So Okay, well, we'll unpack that a little bit. Yeah, but before great. we get into it, can you give us like a very quick summary of Huckleberry Finn? Yeah, very quick summary. So um, this is kind of the sequel to Tom Sawyer. Huck Finn is a kind of like ragamuffin scamp um, living in, it takes place in Missouri, right, Chelsea? I uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and he has been living with, uh, the widow who's been trying to reform him, shape him up, teach him how to read when his father, Pap, returns. Um, his father's just terrible to him, but eventually Huck through like all of these kind of, uh, interesting events escapes, um, with an enslaved man named Jim and they set out down the Mississippi river. Jim is running away because he has heard that he is about to be sold. And Huck, throughout the book, has this kind of internal conflict about what he's doing because he has grown up in a society that views enslaved people as property. So he thinks of himself as a as a thief and like he's doing something wrong. But he also really recognizes Jim's humanity and wants to help Jim as much as possible. They encounter a crazy crew of people along the way. It's an episodic story. So each chapter has kind of its own little adventure and we'll leave it there. We'll spoil this book when we get a little further, but um, we can we can leave it there for now. Is there anything you want to add, Chelsea? No, that was a great summary. I think, I mean, if you're listening to this episode so far and you're like, okay, I haven't read this book or it's been a long time since I read this book and I didn't really want to reread this one because I, like Sarah, have some baggage associated with it or um, like I didn't like it in high school. I think that this will be a great episode to just listen to um, without having read the book. And um, so I just want to throw that out there for our listeners right away. This is, we're going to talk a lot um, more broadly about the book and its place in history. And um, there are just a lot of cultural conversations around this book that are important to to have. So uh, welcome to this episode. All are welcome here, whether you have read the book or not. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think especially like these really like these 
weighty classics, I feel like these episodes are great entry points because you probably, if especially if you are an American listener, have some concepts of <laughs> Huckleberry Finn. Um, and yeah. Well, Chelsea, did you watch – this is just coming to mind. We did not put this in our outline. Did you watch that movie Tom and Huck growing up? Um, with Jonathan Taylor Thomas, heartthrob of and the Devin 90s. And Devin Sawa. Wait, wasn't it Devin yeah. Sawa? Oh my gosh. Uh, so I don't remember. Good. I just remember Jonathan Taylor Thomas. But yeah, I did. <laughs> so great. Uh, yeah. And that, I mean, I think that that in part was why I read Tom Sawyer and really liked it as a kid. Um, it Tom Sawyer and The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn have very different tones, I think. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and I think that we kind of – we lump them together because they are uh, companion novels. And – but Huck Finn is much darker. Is that kind of where you were going with oh, the very yeah. different tones? Yeah. Yeah. And, and Tom Sawyer really feels more like a children's book to mm-hmm. me, whereas this book feels more like – an adult novel with a child protagonist, um, which we've talked about with other books um, in the series too. But yeah, I, I and I think that like the movie Tom and Huck, that's it's about the it, it mostly follows the plot line of Tom Sawyer. Yeah, um, because that really is just these kind of childish hijinks. Okay, maybe faking your own death isn't like a super childish <laughs> hijinks, but it's done in this really like funny, charming way um, versus like, you know, running away from home on the Mississippi River with an escaped enslaved person is like there are hijinks. It's, it is still satire, but it just doesn't have the same light and levity. Yeah. And I mean, certainly part of it is just I read The Adventures of Tom Sawyer on my own for fun as a kid. And then I read The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn in school for English class. Um, And I, you know, that makes a big difference in reading, which we'll talk about on a bonus episode pretty soon here. So um, there's just that like, you know, the the weird ways that certain books make it into the canon versus others – that also just sort of influences that like childhood versus more adults, different tone kind of thing. Absolutely. All right, Sarah. So I mentioned that I read this in high school. I really did not like my 10th grade English teacher. I was so bored in her class. It was like the classic, I'm going to check out because I'm not being challenged kind of situation. And I knew that I could just get away with skimming the books, not reading them, writing a decent essay and getting an A in that class. And so I did not try. Um, and then I read The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn again in college and like actually read it that time, had an interesting professor who I also did not like very much and also felt kind of checked out um, in a lot of my literature classes at that point, feeling like I, again, wasn't being challenged. And so this book um, has not been a favorite for me. (laughs) And reading it again, like I can certainly appreciate it, but it's one of those books that I appreciate and I enjoy the conversation around it far more than the actual book. I was kind of bored listening to it again, to be honest. 
Yeah, I, I think that that's a great point is that like there's maybe a lot of baggage to unpack with this book, but I also agree that it's just not it's not particularly enjoyable to me as a reader. I it's boring. It's the, some some of the jokes are so contextually specific that they're just they're not even if you understand them, they're not funny. Yeah, I I, I agree. I I know I read this in high school, but I don't really remember where. I think probably in 11th grade, which was American history and literature. And I didn't read it in college or grad school, which I think would have been interesting. I think I would have liked more of that type of experience, unpacking it with some literary lenses, which is something we talk about a lot in our Classics Club Patreon community rather than just kind of accepting the text at face value, which is more what happens in high school classrooms. And then when I was hired for my teaching job, it was on the syllabus. And I taught it in both the like quote-unquote regular track American literature and in AP language and comp, um, which was also American lit, and found those experiences to be really different. And, and that was actually helpful. AP Language and Composition is such a rhetoric-focused class. It's all about understanding audience and tone and et cetera. And using those uh, skills to read Huck Finn was actually quite helpful. And so that helped me figure out how to teach it just generally. But I did not enjoy teaching this one. It's hard to teach. It's hard to teach satire. And did you teach this ever? No. Okay. Yeah. At my school, I've talked about this before. So I taught at an all-girls school, but there was an all-boys school. They were technically one school, but like separate divisions, they called it. So the boys' school had dropped teaching Huck Finn because there had been an incident where because like the the teacher i guess the teachers of this book had kind of framed this conversation about the language in the book as you know the the n word is in the book and was is accurate to the time that twain was writing in and about and when you're reading from the text it's okay to Say that oh, word no. aloud. Yes. And so there were there was an incident where a bunch of white boys were sitting in the hallway just reading the book aloud mm-hmm. as students of color walked by. And that was before I got there. I don't know what the repercussions were. Probably none, if I were to guess. But they removed the book from the classroom and kept teaching it in the girls division, which I think is also an interesting choice. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I always found that to be interesting because the girls knew that and it kind of elevated the conversation a little bit. I think they felt they took it seriously that like they were, yeah, that's like our responsibility then. Yeah. Um, and the boys were not, and we talked about what happened in the boys' division mm-hmm. and obviously set different rules around the language in our classroom. Um, but it just kind of gave the 
the book this yeah baggage and weight and that was I think it, I think it led to good conversations um, but it was just it was always just a real challenge yeah um, one of my good teacher friends in uh, South Georgia. She loved teaching this book, um, and the kids seemed really engaged with it too. Like, I think it's important to note that um, she's a black teacher teaching in the South, and I think that context is just missing from a lot of these conversations about which books belong in the classroom. Um, because there's this idea that across America, every kid needs to be reading like the same book at the same time. Yes, instead of yeah, instead of curating books for our classrooms, the way that libraries curate for their communities. Um, and dependent on the teacher and their skills and comfort level. Like mm-hmm. I I think that, you know, I, I found that as a white teacher who didn't really like this book or know how to give it the value of uh, showing students why it had the place it did in the classroom in a predominantly white school, it was not a good fit, I found. But if I had, you know, maybe loved this book, been taught it in a way that I felt like I was bringing conversations to light in a better way, then that might be, that would be different as well. Yeah. And I just, this is such a prime example of regional literature. And so I kept thinking about just as important as it is, I think, to read books in high school that take place in a different setting from where you live and experience different cultures. I just don't feel like this book is the book for teenagers like in the upper Midwest to read and be like, this is the South, you know, I just feel like it perpetuates stereotypes in the same way that the, the book perpetuates a lot of stereotypes about black men. And, um, it perpetuates regional stereotypes. Like Huck is this poor boy from the South. And so like, what concept did I have of the South before I moved, like I moved there and then I taught there. And so I think, you know, contextualizing is just, it's super important for this book. So I think maybe we'll come back to talking about this book as like band book, where it fits in the sort of larger cultural conversation. But I think we should, we should talk about the book itself a little bit more about the story, about the characters. All right. Well, yeah, let's get into to the book. This one would be easy to do a whole episode just about context and reception. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's talk about Huck a little bit. Book is named after him. It's his adventure. What do you think of him as a character? I remember reading it like in past readings. I thought of Huck pretty pretty similar to Tom Sawyer, like a funny, adventurous, rebellious scamp. But this reading, I found him really sad and a little bit more realistic. His relationship with his dad is really sad and abusive. Um, He thinks about death a lot. I think that his sort of like inner fight between doing what he feels is right and doing 
like what he was taught was right is actually quite relatable. And I don't know, like, I don't really like thinking of him as the hero of the book, particularly when the end of the book, he's so horrible. I don't know. What what do you think of, of Huck? I think you summarized all of my, my thoughts really well. Like I, I, and I, I think maybe that's one of my main struggles with this book though, is I, I struggle to see Huck as like a consistent character. I mean, I, I think that, you know, maybe it's appropriate to the time and the just the reality of things that like Huck can't fully shake what he's been taught, even as he's kind of gone on his own journey of moral development. And and a lot of teachers at my school stopped teaching this at the I Can't Pray a Lie chapter. Mm. They just ended it there and moved on, which I think is a fascinating choice. That is really interesting. So, I mean, it's a good a time as any, I guess, to talk a little bit about the end where Tom Sawyer shows up and he and Huck um, need to free Jim. Um, but instead of doing what Huck kind of, you know, wants to do and instead of doing what is right, Tom really wants to make it into a game. Everything is big imagination with him. And so everything has to be like what he read in his storybooks and has to like follow a certain trend. And so it all turns into their their game. And it it's so cruel and yet also like makes a lot of sense with these adolescent boys whose frontal cortexes are not developed at all and who just like the only thing that they know is all of these like stories and games that they play and they're such troublemakers. Um, But it is, it's really hard to read and really hard to swallow. I think that the episodic nature of this makes it difficult to see a lot of the consistency in Huck that you were talking about, Sarah, Um, just because he has to be different and he is almost taking on different characters with each episode. He is very, he is good. And this comes from having an alcoholic abusive father, I'm sure, and survival. He is very good at lying. Well, I don't know if he's good at lying, but he does it really easily, making up stories, changing himself to fit the moment, sussing out the situation. Um, so like having conversations with people and like trying to figure out what's happening before he makes a move. And so all of that does kind of create some inconsistency. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And, and, uh, you are highlighting something that I feel like I've always felt within this book is that Tom is the worst. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. Huck, you can kind of, like you're saying, you can see based on Huck's upbringing, how he is navigating this world. Tom just wants to play yeah. and has no qualms about playing with somebody else's life. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, I, I think that's a great point about the, him, like, you know, both narratively and based on who Huck is having grown up, um, kind of a shapeshifter in some, in some ways. And it kind of makes sense that at the end of the novel too, like he really, He's looking out for himself in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't 
I think, negate like the uh, affection he has for Jim along the way. But he's he's a kid. He's a kid and he's still like got that sort of self-centered focus. And Huck doesn't have any role models. None. So just Tom, who's the worst. Exactly. And he <laughs> thinks about Tom throughout the book. He thinks mm-hmm. like, what would Tom do is essentially his his big question. And it seems like Huck is really fighting this internal battle. He would rather be super straightforward. He is actually very smart. He would rather go the easy route, be more, he's more logical than Tom. He is more like straightforward to the point. And he's smart in that scrappy way that poor kids have to be. Um, He's street smart. Tom, you can see the class difference. Tom wants to play all the time. He can. He has that privilege to play. Huck has lived a harder life than Tom. Um, And so his adventures are actual survival. Tom's adventures are pretend survival. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think that that's, I, I think that the juxtaposition of those two characters is a really smart thing for Mark Twain to have included. I think that Twain has a lot of affection for Tom too, which annoys me Yeah, <laughs> in this case. You know, I, I haven't read, reread Tom Sawyer in a long time, but yeah, I I think and and the book is told through Huck's perspective, so maybe that's part of, you know, what what I'm feeling and it's not so much Twain's affection that we're seeing, it's it's Huck's. That is too, I think a struggle for contemporary readers with this book is being in Huck's mind because he is so conflicted. Like we, it's not like we have a third person narrator ex- kind of exploring the morality of this. We have a young adolescent boy's moral development, which I think makes the book work better. Um, If we had like this, than if we had this third person kind of moralistic narrator. So I think that that being in Huck's mind and his view of the world is both like the challenge and the pleasure or the like, highlight of this this book. Like it's really interesting to be in the mind of a character who's so morally conflicted. I think that can be difficult because it is so obvious to us as readers in the present to know what is right and wrong in this situation. And so I, I, I think that tension is just a complicating factor for reading it as a contemporary reader um, but I think it works better than if we'd had this like a third person and moralizing force. It also, though, I think lets Twain a little off the hook in terms of what he's maybe trying to do with this book and what he's trying to say about slavery and and race. I don't know. I don't. I don't know if that was intentional of him, like hiding, or it's just like the narrative voice he chose for yeah. this. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about Jim as a character a little bit here. He he is um, on this journey with Huck, but in the periphery in a lot of the episodes um, where he's just kind of like absent. Um, but their relationship is really central to the story. And a lot of literary critics cite that um, 
relationship as being incredibly compelling. I don't know if I get that from my reading. I think that I would have to read it a few more times and read it on paper instead of audiobook like I did this last time. Um, but uh, Toni Morrison in her essay on Huckleberry Finn talks a bit about Jim as father to Huck. She also talks about the relationship of sort of like uh, white and black children and knowing that you could have this deep relationship as a child, but then in adulthood, you're going to be separated because of the color of your skin. And some of the other authors who have written about Jim, I don't know. I I found what they were saying really interesting. Yeah. I I think that (laughs) – I'm sorry to keep bringing this back to the the classroom. That's just – fully like my experience with this book. So steeped in that. I think that Jim actually is a really like nuanced character, but that is challenging to see for young Mm -hmm. readers. So I, I, you know, there's so much initially about like Jim's superstitions and all. And again, we're seeing Jim through Huck's eyes. And what we know kind of as adult readers is the way that Huck is misinterpreting Jim um, in many ways. And and I do think that there's something really kind of sweet and lovely about the way that from Huck's perspective, he's taking care of Jim because he has this like racial hierarchy ingrained in his mind. But we, the reader, know that Jim is the one taking care mm-hmm. of Huck. It's a really complicated, intriguing dynamic. And I, I I think that the way that Jim's character maybe has influenced other writers and, and thinkers is really interesting um, as well. I just think a lot of that is easy to miss in in the classroom. And once again, like you can have a teacher explain these things to you, but if you can't access them yourself in the text, they just don't have the same impact on as you on you as a reader. I find with teaching. So, um, yeah, I, I I'm glad you brought up Toni Morrison's essay. I had, I, had, I had actually forgotten about that. I think there's just we talked about context at the top of this episode, and I think that a big reason why this book is difficult to teach is reconstruction is not taught very thoroughly in history classrooms, in my experience, um, in schools. And and the race relationships at this time and the politics of this time are more, a little more complicated and nuanced. Um, I also, so um, Langston Hughes wrote a little bit about Huckleberry Finn. So did Ralph Ellison. I want to share a little bit of their words here. Um, Langston Hughes said that Twain's books punctured some of the pretenses of the romantic old South. The character of Jim is considered one of the best portraits in American fiction of an unlettered slave clinging to the hope of freedom. I do think that at different points in history, readers would see Jim differently. I think that that now it is really easy to look back and see so much of a caricature, but I, yeah, so much depends on historical context. Ralph Ellison cites blackface and minstrelsy 
and says Twain fitted Jim into the outlines of the minstrel tradition, and it is from behind the stereotype mask that we see Jim's dignity and human capacity and Twain's complexity emerge. Um, and that the minstrelsy boyifies Jim, making Huck seem older. Um, and that this is sort of like related to the Jim Crow rules of the South, where a black man could be seen as like um a boy or an uncle, but never like a man in authority. Um, and that there's like this violation of manners in this book. I do think there's there's a lot of subversion in here. Um, but gosh, getting there through all of the layers of history and then like these layers of minstrelsy and stereotypes and it's tough. And I think that a lot of where Jim's like deep humanity and sort of like his, his dignity and those like true, um, personality traits beneath the quote mask come out is in the humor, which is really hard to access. Yeah, absolutely. Right. The, like even the humor with like you know, what Huck perceives as these like superstitious things that we can see as like actually a, like pretty deep knowledge and understanding mm-hmm. of, of the world. Yeah. I, the, it's, it's very hard to access. And I also think that one thing that is a, is a struggle because we're only in Huck's perspective is really we see Jim's humanity in relation to to Huck. And we don't get to see, you know, we care for Huck. We care for Jim because Huck cares for him and he in return cares for Huck. And so there's still that, that dynamic at play throughout that we don't really get to remove ourselves from and shake and see Jim as existing in his own, his own right, which is not the point of this book, but is, I think, a major consideration when thinking about whether to bring this into the classroom instead of something else. This doesn't really count as a pairing because it's not out yet and won't be for a little while, but I'm very excited that Percival Everett is writing a retelling of Huckleberry Finn from the perspective of Jim. I think that he's such a funny writer. Um, and does satire really well. So I think that that's going to shine. Like I can't think of a better author to do to do that work. And so I'm really curious to see what a contemporary black author and um, someone with such like smart, sharp, funny writing does with the story. I think that we might have to make that like a little bonus buddy read or something and come back um, to talk a little bit more about that with some some more nuance for Jim. Absolutely. We've asked kind of about every book that we've covered for our children's classics semester, what this book captures about childhood, what it feels like to be a kid. And I'm curious if you have thoughts on that question for this book. Hmm. Such a good question because poor Huck has had to grow up fast. So it, it mm-hmm. almost feels like he's clinging to his boyhood through Tom. I think that sort of this, sort of the the darker kind of element of childhood here where like you're scared of being separated from your parents at some point. Um, 
you're scared of death. Like, I feel like that really comes across here in a, in a very dark, realistic way. It doesn't seem like the kind of book that, that would do that, but that is here. Um, yeah, it just, it felt so dark to me on this reread. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think that it will be interesting to move from this book to Anne of Green Gables, because I do think maybe there's something that books about orphans or kids who are, you know, Huck doesn't begin the book as an orphan, but he begins the book with an abusive father who dies over the course of the novel. That it's a, it's a different depiction of, of childhood, of course, um, that having to grow up so fast and what that, that means and what that does. I, I think that in children's literature, separating a kid from their parents allows for some of the intriguing depictions of moral development that we get in this book. Can't help compare this to Little Women, too, where a lot of the moral development comes from direct instruction from Marmy that I find to be fairly cloying versus a character like Huck, who's having to learn from experience and try to make sense of the world on his own with Jim, who does help a lot. But I do think that that experience of like being told what's right and feeling like something else is right is a is a common childhood experience right your diversion from what you're told is acceptable and what what you see around you as being morally good and ethical and accurate versus what you feel internally inside and i think that that i i really i do really love the like i can't pray a lie section of this where huck feels like he needs to confess and ask forgiveness for quote unquote stealing Jim, but he, he can't, or he can't pray that lie. He doesn't feel guilty. He does not feel like he needs forgiveness. Um, and he thinks that he's going to hell because of that. And that determinedness of like what he in that moment believes to be right is you know, it's a much bigger question here than most kids experience. But I I do think that that experience of trying to really stick up for what you believe in, regardless of what the adults in your life are telling you is normal and good and right, is depicted really well in this book. Jane Smiley has a really interesting essay about this book as well. So we will include links to the Toni Morrison essay and this one. Um, And she says that this book and Huck's experience of like feeling a certain way towards Jim versus sort of like thinking what he should do, what's right or wrong, and what he acts on is actually the quintessential depiction of American racism because um, Americans want to view racism as a feeling and absolve themselves of racism if they, you know, don't feel like they are racist or if they feel like they love everyone or that they don't hate anyone. But actually being anti-racist requires action and social change. And so that's where Huck really fails at the end of this book, where 
he does have those anti-racist feelings towards Jim. He develops this relationship with him, this friendship, this almost father-son relationship over the course of their time. But when it comes to needing to act, he doesn't do what's right, even though his gut is telling him to. And I think that's a really modern reading. I don't necessarily think that that reading would have been available to Mark Twain himself or um, readers, you know, I think our concept Maybe of anti-racism. Maybe even 10 racism. years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. think our concept of structural racism and and anti-racism as action has really changed over even the last five years. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a very contemporary reading, but that, oof, that, when I read that, I was like, that feels really profound. Oh, I love, I love that. I had not read the Jane Smiley essay, but now I would like to. It's really great to read in tandem with the Toni Morrison because Toni Morrison is actually pretty positive about mm-hmm. this book. And, you know, her the last sentence is, it is classic literature, which is to say it heaves, manifests, and lasts. Like mm. as much as she talks about sort of like hating reading it in the classroom mm-hmm. because of incompetent teachers who didn't know how to do that well, um, she really like talks about a lot of the book's merits. Jane Smiley is much more critical. And so reading them back to back, highly recommend that reading experience. Yeah. I mean, I do think that one thing to put in the pro column of teaching this somewhere along the right way is it really has had a profound influence on American literature and American writers and American characters that we see. And so, you know, I, I think that a lot of this comes down to considering what is the point of English class. And I think for a long time, the point of English class was sure the reading and writing, but also cultural capital. And the idea that like everybody needed to have a baseline knowledge of certain texts in order to, you know, be in cultural situations where you're maybe talking, thinking about books with other people or whatnot, thinking about the ongoing literary landscape and canon. I think we've moved away from that as being like the primary purpose of English class. And I think that's good. But I do feel like, like if you were to go on and study American literature, it would be hard to have this as a gap. So, and and I think that a lot of college professors don't enjoy teaching it either. And so they just don't, but it really feels to me like it really fits more in like a college survey class um, rather than a high school level survey class. But yeah, we didn't talk about necessarily like where it fits into American literature, but it, it, it really holds sway there. So, well, speaking of, should we get into our pairings? Yes, definitely. All right, Chelsea, what is your first pairing for Huckleberry Finn? Oh, gosh, Sarah, it was difficult to come up with pairings for this one because- I agree, and I I know that I'm missing one that I like right? thought of, and I'm like, I'm scrolling through my Goodreads. I'm like racking my brain. I know it's going to pop up as soon as we- stop recording and we'll have to share, maybe we'll have to share some extras elsewhere. Yeah. I think part of it is I I read very few coming of age books with boys at the center. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that's part of it. Um, I think 
framing this one like we have in this season as a children's book kind of got me thinking like if there were some middle grade or some YA books that might fit well here. And also it's just like, it's such a classic (laughs) with a capital C. Um, It's almost tough to link any contemporary literature to this one, even though it feels in a way like all American literature, as (laughs) as some people would say, kind of like comes back to, um, to Huckleberry Finn. I was thinking a lot about Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry, which we covered on the podcast a while back in relation to this book, just um, as far as like the epic journey and um, a young boy sort of questioning morality, um, experiencing death and traumatic events and sort of relying on these older male characters for guidance. I think that it fits in a similar kind of vein. So if you haven't, either read Lonesome Dove or listened to that episode, I would recommend going back to that. But that's kind of like, that's a little little bonus, just tossing out a classic paired with a classic there. Um, I, okay. I think in part because we read this coming right out of Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. And that book got us thinking so much about fatherhood and family and like warmth. That's why this book felt so dark reading it in contrast. So I want to recommend a book that is more about like a young boy's coming of age experience with his father, but it's a more positive experience. Um, but in a way that he has, he does have to like grow up quickly in order to deal with what's happening. Um, I think I've referenced it on the podcast before, but I haven't paired it yet. It is Before the Ever After by Jacqueline Woodson. And I, I love this book so much. It's not an episodic epic journey like Huckleberry Finn, but it is about a young boy coming of age and his dad is a star football player in the NFL and he's had multiple traumatic brain injuries. And so he's starting to really feel the effects of those and his personality is changing because of it. And so it's about this young boy who just wants his dad and has to grow up quickly because he is kind of becoming the man of the house because of it. I, Jacqueline Woodson, this is a middle grade novel. It is told in verse. It is, it's so, so good on audio. The narrator is incredible. Um, and I, I think that there are some really interesting parallels that other, that scholars and sports writers have drawn between the NFL and slavery. Um, and I, I think that this book without really going super deep into it because it's for kids brushes that topic just a little bit and sort of like, what are the ethics behind this? And, and, um, how does race play into this, um, father's life as an NFL player who's been injured? So it's the coming of age story of a young black boy. The, yeah, there, like, there are a few thematic parallels, but I just kept thinking about like, I just want Huck to have a good dad. <laughs> and so this, this book, um, gosh, it's just, I, I am just happy to recommend it in the children's classic season in general, paired with anything because I love it so much. That's Before the Ever After by Jacqueline Woodson. It's such a great book, man. She's so good. <laughs> yes. All right. My first pairing is Washington Black by Essie Edegayan. 
I love this book so much. And honestly feel like I would teach this instead of Huck Finn, maybe if I were to go back into the classroom. It is about a uh, young boy. He's 11 when the story begins. His name is Washington Black. And he is enslaved on a plantation in Barbados. He ha- he develops an interesting relationship with his master's brother, whom he calls Titch. Titch is extremely eccentric. He has um, maybe theoretically more modern ideas about race, but maybe not. Just that's kind of a question of the novel. Um, And he really wants Wash to help him with the building and then uh, use of this like flying machine that he has created. So it's a little bit speculative and it becomes this sort of like speculative adventure novel. But, But really it's just kind of that one element of them building this flying machine and escaping Barbados in it. Wash has to, has to flee because like some, some atrocity happens and he's afraid he's going to get blamed for it. And Titch and Wash end up on this adventure. They go to the Arctic. Wash then finds himself in like New England, I think. It goes to England. It goes elsewhere that I don't even want to tell you because it's almost spoilery. What makes this such a good pairing for Huck Finn is that it is really a direct challenge to a white savior story, but nothing about it is simplistic. It's very nuanced. Titch is still a very likable character, even though you see his tremendous, the flaws in his thinking and how he treats Wash. You also have, in this case, a the story told by a young black boy and that he's escaping with an older white man who um, is maybe more of the like superstitious kind of bumbling caricature that it could be easy to read Jim as. Um, we see maybe more in, in Titch. I just, I love, I love this, this book so much. I think that it at every chance, it verges, diverges from being too simplistic. You think maybe it could easily fall into a sort of moralistic tale, and it doesn't. Um, it also kind of defies expectations about literally where the novel ends up. Um, it's one that had that the themes continue to turn themselves over in my mind. It's hard to settle on like an easy answer of like, this is what this book is trying to do or about and, but in a really good way. I just, I love this book and the prose is fantastic. So it's Washington Black by Essie Edegayan. That's such a perfect pairing, Sarah. (laughs) Oh, it's such a good book. And I, I all, I almost paired it with the Odyssey when we talked about the Odyssey because it is very very much based, and so is Huck Finn, very much based on the the Odyssey with that episodic mm-hmm. journey. But I knew we would cover Huck Finn one day, so I saved it for saved it for this episode. Well, my next pairing kind of goes with the Odyssey too. Perfect. Um, it is This Tender Land by William Kent Kruger. This is a beloved book by many historical literary fiction readers. 
And uh, William Kent Kruger actually generally writes crime fiction. Um, he writes the, uh, I think it's Cork O'Connor, Iron Lake is the first one. He writes that series. Um, but this book kind of veers from that a little bit. Um, it takes place in 1932 and the river in question is not the Mississippi. It is Minnesota's Gilead River. And um, the book opens and the main character, Odie, is at the Lincoln Indian Training School. Um, and this is uh, a residential school. Um, and Odie and his brother, Albert, are the only white kids um, among all of the Native American children at the school. They commit a crime and they have to go on the run and they take their best friend who is of Sioux culture and heritage and they also take a little girl with them and they head off um, towards the Mississippi in a canoe. Um, And so this is just about four orphan ragamuffin kids who are on a journey to somewhere. Um, and there's sort of a little bit of an episodic nature where they like come across different people at different points on the river, um, different families and characters. And so there's just like this epic great American novel feeling to this book. And so very different setting up North in Minnesota. Um, but I think that their journey towards the Mississippi and some of the, uh, racial issues in question and just, um, a lot of this sounds very, very like the adventures of Huckleberry Finn and the Odyssey. So that is This Tender Land by William Kent Kruger. That's been on my TBR for a while. Yeah. I've been meaning to check out his writing. It's probably a good audiobook. I would think so. Yeah. My next one is The Good Lord Bird by James McBride, which is a National Book Award winner and a fantastic TV series now. Really? Oh, yeah. I haven't watched that one yet. Oh, it's really good. Um, It's hard to watch, as you can imagine, but it's really, really well done. And Ethan Hawke is like a perfect John Brown. So... This book is, once again, told from the perspective of a young black boy, um, Henry Shackelford. He is enslaved in Kansas in the 1850s, and he he has a run-in with John Brown, the famous abolitionist. Um, Henry's father dies early in, in the novel, and... John Brown mistakenly thinks that Henry is a girl named Henrietta and feels responsible for taking care of Henry because of his father's death. And so um, Henry becomes known as Little Onion in John Brown's kind of camp band of, uh, band of, I don't know, (laughs) vigilantes kind of. and a uh, little onion gets like a, kind of adopted by them and grows to love John Brown while recognizing his sort of um, craziness is kind of how he thinks of it. But in obviously it, in service of a really noble goal. 
And so once again, this is a book that really questions the idea of, uh, really challenges the idea of a white savior, but with nuance, like John Brown is still a fantastic character um, on the side of, of right, but we get to see his moral shortcomings and his foibles through the eyes of Little Onion. Um, there's a lot kind of, there's some great run-ins with historical figures, including Frederick Douglass, who does not come off great in this novel, interestingly, and is played by David Diggs in the show, fantastically. Harriet Tubman makes an appearance here. It's just, that's a really um, compelling work of historical fiction. It's also satire. It's very funny, but still uh, depicts a lot of the brutalities of of pre-Civil War or the pre-Civil War South. And the the kind of battle of Harper's Ferry where John Brown really made his attempt to overthrow the the vicious institution of, of slavery and, and of course failed, but maybe started something or helped to start something. So I I really enjoyed this book. It's James McBride is a fantastic writer. Um everything that he's doing here, again, nuanced, funny, uh, complicated. It's a good one to read with a book club because there's a lot to unpack. So it is The Good Lord Bird by James McBride. Sarah, I can't wait to hear from listeners um, in our Instagram comments and over at our newsletter and from our Patreon members on Discord about this book. I think that we're going to have a lot of great conversation going. Um, this is not our book club pick. We're discussing Anne of Green Gables, but I'm excited to talk about this one in Discord with everyone. So make sure you let us know what you think of this episode and of the adventures of Huckleberry Finn wherever you follow us. Um, just to cite some of those places, of course, we would love to have you in Classics Club, which is our Patreon community. This is where we are learning to be better, more critical, and thorough readers of classic and contemporary literature. We discuss a classic at the end of the month together and we share bonus episodes most Fridays um, and just little bonus things, links and behind the scenes stuff. So go ahead to patreon.com slash novel pairings. We have annual subscriptions available for a little discount um, and we would just love to have you over there. We've been really loving connecting with you over at Substack. We have our Substack newsletter, novelpairings.substack.com. Um, and then, of course, at novelpairingspod on Instagram. So wherever it works best for you to follow us. Um, I will say if you want like calendars and announcements and stuff, Patreon and Substack are the best places to be because Instagram's exhausting and it might not show you everything. Even if we share and share and share, you might not see it. So. Um, once again, our newsletter, novelpairings.substack.com, that is the perfect place to go for announcements and updates on the show. We also just want to thank you for writing such sweet reviews of our show recently. Any new reviews and fresh words boost novel pairings in the Apple Podcast, in the Apple Podcast algorithm so that new literary listeners can find our show. If you haven't taken the time to write a few words about why you love novel pairings, please do so so we can continue to grow and continue to share to more book lovers. Thank you to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. 
Next time, we'll be back to discuss Anne of Green Gables by L.M. Montgomery. Until then, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book.